Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, you're listening to the Technology Equals Equality Podcast. Welcome back to the Technology Equals Equality Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Brooks, and this is episode 38. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Darren Hansen, author of the Dunlith Hill Writing Guides and publisher of the Dunlith Hill Books. Darren is a narrator, an audiobook producer, an MIT-trained anthropologist, engineer, and historian. He has worked on nuclear weapons, created fractal fungus, and tried assorted other schemes for world domination. Fortunately for all concerned, he discovered that writing is a socially acceptable outlet for his congenital megalomania. Darren happens to be not only the most amusing author I've had the pleasure of speaking with, but he also happens to have the best audiobook voice ever. It's almost like I'm speaking to a live audiobook the entire episode. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Darren, what we would love to do is go back to a time before you began writing, before you were thinking of the publishing industry, back in your you know high school days. What was it that you saw the future as being for yourself? Well, from the very beginning, I knew I was destined to rule the world, but that's probably a little too far. By the time I was in school, I had pretty much settled on an academic career. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father was an academic, uh, grown up in a university environment, and so besides feeling natural, it also, uh, well, having spent a fair amount of time uh, helping my grandfather build houses, I had uh, a very definite preference for air conditioning. (laughs) As many of us do. (laughs) Yes. Well, as Sheldon Cooper says on The Big Bang, why go outside when we spent so long perfecting inside? (laughs) And so I, I set off on an academic career. And in doing so, that's actually... When I started running into those little discrepancies between reality and expectation that ultimately added up to a pivot, my first was that I thought I would uh, follow a technical career, and in the course of my studies, had a life-changing experience with thermodynamics, namely that it put me to sleep. I had another course, my first graduate seminar that met for three hours once a week, and who could sit through a class for three hours? And, uh, and yet, that class didn't put me to sleep. In fact, it always ended too soon. Interesting. And that class was asking much bigger questions than what was the uh, steam point in a pressure system. Mm-hmm questions about why we were doing these things, and I realized I needed to know a lot more. So I shifted my emphasis to history. But then I learned that um, the market for history professors was particularly constrained, and while I might be able to land a position, I probably couldn't control where I landed that position. (laughs) Right, right. And so I had to start, I had, had to think at that point, well, I have, I have this training, I have background, but what do I have? And uh, that's, that's where, in retrospect, I started down the road of an entrepreneur. Interesting. 
So basically, you were on the road of an academic career and really began shifting while in school and kind of looking at where the future was going. You were saying to yourself, you know what, it's slim pickings in this department, and I'm not really sure if I would have much control over the direction of my career. Um, and that's when you kind of made the decision that you would go down your own path. Yes, indeed. Excellent. So what were some of the first steps that you took once you decided, okay, it is time to make my own path? There's a, there's an odd little movie, uh, a Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie from oh the mid-90s that nobody likes to talk about, uh, called Joe vs. the Volcano. This is a very strange little movie that, uh, well, it... it Part of the reason no one likes to talk about it is that it was a little more complicated than, say, Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> the basic uh, plot driver is that a, uh, in, an industrial magnate who needs a rare mineral found only on a single island uh, hires Joe to jump into the volcano on that island because the natives uh, have gone a hundred years without pleasing the volcano god. At one point, talking about heroes, the, the industrial says, it's going to be great, they need a hero, you'll get this treatment. He says, well, and Joe says, well, I'm, I, I don't know about them, but I'm my only hope for a hero. That, as odd as it sounds, was one of the most important steps for me because that was when I realized that institutions weren't going to take care of me. That is, the academy that I was preparing to be part of wasn't, was structured for its own needs and not to, not to address mine. And that was when I began developing my self-reliance muscles. And at least for me personally, a big part of self-reliance was working out how to be entrepreneurial in, in the things that I was doing while still meeting my personal obligations. Mm -hmm. That is, I didn't feel that I was to a point where I could say to my family, sacrifice everything because I've got a great idea. I felt I had to earn that trust. Now, earning that trust involved a series of things, and this... Um, I have a bit of perspective here because I've worked in a large organization, small startups, my own endeavors. And so at every point, it was a question of balance between chasing my dreams, my ideas, and meeting those obligations. How do you feel you found that balance? Um, what do you feel were, were some of the contributing pieces to uh, creating the balance between following that journey but also meeting those obligations. Part of it was being clear about the why. Realized very early on that there were a lot of people having good ideas and chasing those ideas, and that if I was always chasing the next great idea, I would probably be one of the crowd. And so instead, it was a matter of sitting back and thinking, now, part of it too, um, a lot of, prior, prior to the internet, a lot of activity was coastal. Uh, I'm from the Intermountain West, and uh, after 
after my uh, schooling, returned there. And while there are many opportunities, many opportunities everywhere, the easy ones, the examples that uh, we were reading about, tended to be on one coast or the other where there was a lot more entrepreneurial infrastructure. I mean, it's no, no accident that Silicon Valley is in California or, um, oh, I've forgotten the, uh, the Massachusetts equivalent, Silicon Route, Route 128. Oh, Boston, uh, the, the 128 Belt Loop. Yes, yeah, because there was a lot of action, a lot of uh, entrepreneurial activity going on in the Belt Loop. And uh, there was a silicon for that as well. Uh, there, no accident that that was happening on the coasts because the coasts are where a lot of social forces met. So it wasn't simply a matter of grabbing an idea and running with it. From my perspective in one of the flyover places, I had to be very clear about what and why and how it was going to work out. And this led me to dealing with what I found to be the most difficult part of being an entrepreneur, which was FOMO. Uh, that's the, my acronym for fear of missing out. I, know, I, I see a lot of people who get excited about something, and their excitement comes from a feeling that this is how they're going to be part of something. When building a business, when building, when following the entrepreneurial path requires extra courage to take the road less traveled and forego some of the things that other people might be doing while you pursue an idea. What was it that inspired you to begin with the actual publishing and the writing? Was it the writing first, or did you choose to become a publisher and then begin your writing journey? What was it that that made you make the pivot or made you blend the two um, into the Dunhill Publishing um, and the guides that you have currently? I had been writing for a very long time, and in fact, at one point, thought that uh, thought that I might go straight into writing out of school. And discovered that it was a far more difficult proposition than it appeared. So writing is something that I had done in various capacities, come to, moved away from, uh, had done a lot of nonfiction, so technical writing. Mm -hmm. In part, it was opportunity. In part, it was process. So opportunity, the advent of open electronic publishing created a tremendous opportunity for writing outside of the standard realms of commercial and even academic publishing. But there were very well-established paths for going down those roads. The other part, process, I had uh, undertaken having been away from writing for a while, involved in the tech industry, as part of the downturn, found myself between situations, wanted to return to fiction, realized that I had been away from it long enough that I needed to think, think through what I was doing. 
to understand craft, narrative, storytelling, to collect the tools. In some respects, what, we've seen, what you see now as the writing guides started out as my study notes for my own self-improvement process. Because one, one of the lovely ironies is sometimes the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I began, I, I was teaching in this context uh, primarily through a blog. Part of what I was working at as well was the discipline of continuous production. One of the challenges I think that many people have when they come to something like writing is they think that if they can just get the one great idea, then they'll take off. But most overnight sensations have been working on becoming the sensations for decades. Consistency, I find, is tremendously important. And so, with all of that coming together, the last piece is that I wanted to learn how to use the new technology, the systems of creating books, so, and then publishing. Creating, there are, there are tools, of course, beginning with just the basic tools for capturing writing. And then once you have the body of the book ready, there's the process of formatting it, of producing the kinds of files to be uploaded to the different publishers, producing physical copies of the book. Uh, all of this is far easier than it was even a decade ago when, well, part of the reason the publishing industry existed is because it required specialized knowledge and specialized connections to actually produce printed books. Right. So a confluence of opportunities. And in, in this case, it was more a uh, fascination than a particular plan. Uh, as much as I would like to say it was always part of the plan for world domination. It was an opportunity to experiment. And I think one of the things that we often underplay as adults is the value of play. Being an entrepreneur is both very serious business, but also an opportunity to play at something that intrigues you. There's a balance to be struck between those ideas. But there's real power in playing, because sometimes what you're playing at proves better because it is more spontaneous, more authentic than something you're striving at. When you're on your own path, if you stay true to your path, it will pivot at some point in time. Um, it, it's going to change to be, you know, something that's really serving you and who you are and what you're looking for, as well as being able to serve the problem in the industry that you're dealing with. And, and oftentimes when you venture into, you know, a, a specific industry that may be of interest to you and you think you have an idea, it may not necessarily be completely serving of the need in that industry. So um, definitely, I, I feel like it is an opportunity to kind of Go ahead and look at things that you are uh, appreciative of and want to have some sort of involvement in, 
um, but the pivot needs to be uh, something that you're aware of and and able to uh, deal with easily. Um, in the the publishing industry, um, I, I can't realistically think of any industry uh, across the board that hasn't been realistically affected by technology in some way, shape, or form over the past two decades. Um, but how do you feel that technology has really allowed you as a publisher to handle the changes in the industry? And what do you feel has been the biggest piece that has been of assistance to you technology-wise as a publisher? Publishing is a fascinating industry because we have so much emotional baggage tied up into it because we love the books that we read well. And we hate books, too. But you, when you think about books, you usually think about ones with which you have an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And yet behind that is an industry no different from the supply chain that uh, keeps your grocery store stocked. And so it is as you learn more about the publishing industry, you find it's almost a, a bipolar mix of high ideal and hard-nosed business practices. Publishing as an industry has had prior to, let's say, a decade ago. The, the real key year is 2007 when Amazon introduced the Kindle and the ebook market around it. But there were other players Ebooks have been available since the mid-90s, but you kind of had to work to read books electronically. The publishing industry that had grown up around that started first as a distribution system and had seen over the decades progressive consolidation until by the 90s, it was essentially owned by oh, six, very, six multinational corporations and then a series of smaller, smaller but still very large players, because it was all about the distribution. When electronic books came out, when Amazon created a market for electronic books with Kindle, they opened distribution up to anyone. So instead of trying to get your book into a major distribution system, convincing the distributors to carry the book so that they could present it to the bookstores and so on, it was possible to just upload and go. Now, clearly, as many people were saying, here's the classic disintermediation. We can cut out the middlemen, go straight to the readers, and away we go. For me, what I find far more intriguing is the opportunity to publish things that would not have been published before because they weren't sufficiently commercial. And what is sufficiently commercial? Well, it's actually a book that will get you into the bookstore to buy it when it's released and clear it out to make room for the next one that you've got to get back into the bookstore to buy. Books that sell steadily year after year used to be the, the heart of the publishing industry 30, 40 years ago, but the industry has progressively shifted to focus on bestsellers, which in retail terms gives them better turn. They're able to move more merchandise through the bookstore. Mm -hmm. 
Well, if you've got something that for which there is an audience, but it's not an audience of hundreds of thousands of people, the, the publishers weren't really very interested in such things. You see, a similar, you see similar things happening, albeit a decade earlier, in music. Music labels used to have selections covering all sorts of music, a jazz label, a country label. Um, as the companies, as the music industry has changed, and I'm less conversant with the, the details there, but as it has changed, the labels have focused on the very biggest acts, and they've dropped, for example, their jazz lines where a given album would never go gold or platinum because it was a much smaller community. Okay. The changes in publishing have opened, opened up the world of smaller communities. Now, of course, no one writes a book hoping that one or two other people will read it. Uh, we always would like everybody to read it. But realistically, there are, and, and since 2007, there's been ample evidence of this, there are many small communities that will be interested in a given book for reasons that a publisher could never have capitalized on before. So, for example, I have, uh, through Dunleth Hill, have released a young adult steampunk adventure novel that I think would never make it in the commercial world because it's not the sort of thing that uh, Hunger Games, you've got to go read it right now. It's, it's a story that I think is going to find its audience slowly because it asks a great deal of the audience. So these are, I, I think these are remarkable opportunities it also changes the way that you think about things like release schedules. What, in fact, does a release mean? It's an opportunity to do something very different than the model that has characterized publishing for, say, the last 40 years. In terms of a new entrepreneur who is looking at becoming a publisher, maybe someone who has been writing for some time, what do you feel they should really focus on um, as the, the biggest piece for them when they are looking at becoming a publisher and, and embarking on this journey? What would you suggest that they really focus on? The two fundamental questions are, why do you want to do it in the first place and what do you expect it to achieve? One of the persistent challenges writers face is that most of us want to have written, not to write. Most of us want the recognition that comes from saying, look, it's my book, and we stand for the photo op, and we do the signings, and isn't it great? The real work of writing is, in fact, in producing the book. And so if you're in love, if you're in love with the idea of the exciting, visible part, and not so hot on wrestling words into readable prose, as with many things, you need to check your expectations. We, we talk, we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, an astronaut, a fireman. Or, okay, my, they, now they probably say a billionaire uh, running for the presidency. But uh, the children don't realize that 
those kinds of jobs that look very exciting require a tremendous amount of training, stamina, dedication. But it's very much an iceberg situation where the exciting part is the tiny part sticking out of the water. And most of the rest of your time is spent doing things that are, in fact, very hard. Writing is that way, too. So for someone new interested in doing this, the, the question of what do you expect to get out of it and why do you want to do this is critical. Now, I want to be careful here because in saying it, my purpose is not to discourage. My purpose is to challenge you to think past those initial exciting thoughts. It's easy to dream what you would do if you won win the lottery. It's challenging to realize the actual odds and instead set to work through to patiently save money and build wealth and so on. Writing is very much the same. And it is even more so now because in historians historians can argue and uh, i haven't done enough academic work to say definitively that the societal pivot date was but sometime in in the last oh 15 20 years we have as a as a society pivoted from scarcity to abundance let me illustrate that with publishing Prior to the advent of electronic books, books were released at a certain time to create scarcity and necessity. That is, you couldn't get the book until this date. Think, for example, of, the, um, of people lining up to buy the latest Harry Potter book at midnight at their bookstores. In contrast... We're now in a time where, yes, there are still things that have release dates, but uh, in general, you can get anything you want at about, at al almost anything you want at almost any time you want it. With so much available, and much here is going to include all of the books that have been written in the last hundred years, that uh, heretofore have been unavailable because they were under copyright, but, not, uh, but were no longer in print. And so outside, perhaps, of a library, you couldn't find the book. As all of those uh, in the industry, they're called backlist books, become available, readers are going to have essentially a century of literature to rediscover. Meanwhile, there are on the order of a million, j just in, in the English market, a million new books being published a year. The question to consider in an age of abundance is, what do you have to add? And again, my point here is not to discourage, because everyone does potentially have something to add, but you need to be clear about what you have to add, as opposed to throwing out something that's just a me too. Sparkly vampire romance? Me too. And... Uh, the thing is, uh, after, after oh, say, your seventh or eighth sparkly vampire, they kind of get old. 
this is something, and, and I, I see strong analogies between uh, publishing and other entrepreneurial areas. For example, apps. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that, oh, was it a million, 10 million, the Apple Store reported that uh, they had that they had surpassed some odometer mark on millions of applications. You've got a great idea for a new app. Is it in fact a new app? Is it an app that does something different enough that it will matter? Or is it going to be a me too? So it is the, the change here is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, we've got tremendous opportunities to do things that were not done before because they made no sense for the distribution chain. On the other hand, because we have those opportunities, so do many other clever people. And I'm glad you said that, Derek, because that was what I was going to kind of look at next. So, with the with this pivot, with this shift in the industry as a whole, where there is such an abundance, how do you go about strategically publishing to deal with uh, the abundance that is out there? How do you deal with the issue of being found? That is the probably trillion-dollar question, and it's on my wish list, because if somebody can come up with a nice, simple, technical answer... Away we go, and we're we're all really happy. Uh, and that's what the magic wand should be used for. See, so you should that at the end, right? <laughs> yes, but, but we, we can circle we can circle back to the magic wand. In the meantime, there's the issue of research. If if you've got a great idea, but it turns out that you are 97th in line with that great idea, well. How many people, just consider yourself or people you know, look past, say, the first one or two pages of search results? Uh, there's a lot of energy in search optimization to try and get you on that, that first page. Same sort of thing. If you've got a great idea that a lot of other people have had as well, it's going to be very hard to be found. Which is not to say that you've got to be unique. Rather, and this is something that is critical to the craft of writing, you've got to dig deeper than the initial idea. There was an old pro, well, a, a game show, Family Feud, and uh, representatives from each family were asked to name of 100 people surveyed, name something that has the following. Well, the 100 people surveyed were the audience. The first answer that comes to mind is probably the first answer that came to mind for the 50 people surveyed, for 50 of the people that were surveyed. As a writer, faced with a narrative problem, the challenge, your challenge is to think of the answer three or four times. Not because it's simply about obscure things, but because to contribute to the conversation, you need something other than the obvious answer. Now, if you have an obvious answer and you can't find it any place, you may in fact have hit upon something. This is where you, 
Well, it's a scientific method. Hypothesis, test, hypothesis, test. So look at the answer. Check and see if anyone else has come up with that answer. The other thing, though, is that you can spend all of your time researching. At some point, and this is, this is easier to illustrate when we're talking about a creative endeavor, at some point, you've got to go with your gut because finishing matters more than being absolutely spot on with all of your research. To say that another way, the, what the, the best, what we're, especially in terms of creative endeavors, the best way to stand out is to bring something to the grand conversation that is our social interaction, that is a thing that you find genuinely fascinating. So instead of saying, be quiet because I have the truth and you must listen to me, you're saying, here is something that I think is immensely cool, and you might find it interesting too. This is an idea that um, in one of my writing guides, sustainable creativity, an idea that I actually picked up from an artist named Austin Kleon. His answer, his answer to this fundamental question that I essentially thought through out loud in sustainable creativity is find something fascinating and share it with the world. Cleon makes the point that originality is a false goal because if you're trying to be absolutely original, you're going to find that everything has some kind of precedent. Back to, our, back to Harry Potter, that was not the first story about uh, young people going to wizard school. Off the top of my head, one of my, one of my favorite pre-Harry Potter versions was A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And that wasn't the only one there either. So the originality that's, that's needed here is not that kernel idea. The originality is how you develop it. And in writing, what's fascinating is that you can give 10 writers the same idea, the same writing prompt, and you'll get 10 different stories. And so part of the fascination with writing is not so much that the idea itself has never been done before, but rather the way this author has taken and worked with that idea. Now, the idea has to be stronger than sparkly vampire romance. And there's a lot more to say, and I say a great deal in the book, Sustainable Creativity, about good ideas. Briefly, good ideas are, are never isolated ideas. They're actually, to use a uh, chemistry analogy, they're not atoms. They're complex molecules of all sorts of associated ideas bouncing off of each other, making something that's very interesting. And in fact, the science analogy works here because there are, well, depending on uh, which very heavy and stable element has or has not been found, on the order of 100 elements. 
And yet, those hundred elements can be combined into molecules of tremendous variety. And then if we get into something like life, living systems, it turns out that the elements involved in living systems are a subset of the entire set of elements, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and, well, and a few others, oxygen, yeah, can't leave that one out. But uh, out of that small set come the infinitude of combinations that we've seen that we see in the living world. That's what happens with ideas, and that's what when we talk about originality, it's that originality of the expression, not so much the core idea. So, if you think about some of the apps pivoting to technology that have been very powerful, very popular, it's not that the idea of a web-based email system had never occurred before Gmail came out. It's that Google did it in a way that is extraordinarily compelling. So there's we often constrain ourselves in thinking, oh, it's it's this one core idea that that's going to make all the difference. In fact, we wind up thinking, limiting ourselves by thinking, oh, if I can just have the one idea, that idea for the business then that makes all the difference. And in fact, all the rest can be left as an exercise to the reader. What I have found is that that's a complete inversion. The, uh, the motto of the school I went to in Latin is mens et manus, minds and hands. And the real, the real key that at least feels deeply true in my own life is the synthesis of minds and hands, of ideas and work. Okay, I, I went to MIT and there are, there are people who, uh, well, okay, from the inner mountain west, there were people who thought it was a tech school, but uh, there are other people who think that it's a, a fairly notable place. What I found among the people there that set them apart from other people was not native intelligence, cleverness. It was, it, they were intelligent, they were very clever, but it was that coupled with a willingness to do the hard, often unglamorous work that set them apart from other people I've run into. And, I, and I've known people who were very clever and people who worked very hard. But that synthesis of the two, I find, makes the real difference. Well, I think that is something that um, most entrepreneurs, uh, you know, kind of have their, their uh, thought process not necessarily focused around, but um, again, it, it's, you know, going back to the pivot in the conversation of, you know, having the idea doing the work and and having the ability to make sure that you are aware of what is going on in the industry and how it is that you can serve best and knowing the why, knowing why it is you're doing it so that you can actually um, serve that uh, industry to the best of your ability. Uh, and I particularly like the way, Laura, you, you, you phrase it in terms of service because I think, 
at least I've I've worked with entrepreneurs who saw saw themselves as a gift to the industry. <laughs> and those those endeavors were generally not not as successful as the ones who approached the industry first from a more humble perspective and from a perspective of being grateful to be able to participate. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's knowing your why, knowing why it is you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, and definitely I, I phrase it as serving specifically uh, because that's that's what I feel it is. As an entrepreneur, you should be uh, married to the goal and not necessarily the idea. Um, so, you know, the, the show is really designed so that we can assist entrepreneurs with coming up with an idea, um, you know, and, and learning about different industries that they may not have heard of or have heard of and really haven't had the opportunity to kind of delve into um, to uncover what those, you know, challenges and day-to-day hassles might be so that they can create a new solution um, and, and new businesses. And so we would love to help you, Darren, and, and we're going to go back to that magic wand at this point. And maybe it'll be the same, but maybe just maybe there might be something other than what we've discussed previously. <laughs> Well, the, the, the real magic wand I'd like is, in fact, a time machine. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> like, like the ending of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where having defeated the bad guy, it's time to put on the tra- the transcendent rock concert that changes the world and brings peace and harmony. There's only one small problem. They can't play. So they hop into the time machine, reappear a second later, having just spent 18 months of in- completing 18 months of intensive guitar lessons. That, that would really help. We're on it. No. In, in, in the absence of that, the real game changer that I want, um, and I have, I've been thinking about, but, um, I, well, the real game changer that we need in, in an age of abundance is a personal, trusted discovery system. It's great systems like Amazon's customers who purchased this item also purchased because things tend to clump together. That's certainly better than nothing. But with these recommendation systems, it's hard to know whether the recommendation is in fact suitable for you or is suitable for the interests behind the company, whether it's shareholders, advertisers, and so on. I am, I dream about a system that can tell me, rather like a best friend, who can say, I just read a book that I loved and I think you'll love too. Um, and to have that in the app store, none of us are ever going to make sense of a million apps. We suspect that there are probably some out there that we would really enjoy using, but finding them is a challenge. This, so this is my, my biggest magic wand right now. How to navigate all of this abundance. And I think actually it, it points to an ethical issue because 
when we have abundance, there's a danger of devaluing it. And as short-time residents, visitors, in fact, to this world, we should never forget what an immense privilege it is to be here and have access to what we, the things we have access to. And if some of them happen to be abundant, it's particularly tempting to forget such things. So it really does come back to the why. Why are we here? What are we about? What are the things where, it's, where there are so many things available? What are the things that, in fact, will make us happy? Boy, if I could figure out how to monetize that, I'd have a superabundance. <laughs> Darn, you've been wonderful. And I love, absolutely love that idea. Um, somewhat of a genius uh, effect, much like in the, uh, you know, with Apple Music and the ability to create a, a list of music or a uh, some sort of... Um, Playlist is, is what I was looking for, a playlist in your music based off of your preferences and your habits and, and the way that you uh, generally choose pieces that you would normally be reading would be awesome. Um, I know myself when I go into uh, not necessarily even uh, the apps or, you know, ebooks, but when I walk into Barnes & Noble, sometimes it's difficult to pick out where I want to begin walking through because it's, you know, there's such an abundance uh, that is out there. So I love that piece. I think that would be outstanding. So we will hopefully get the audience right to work on that. But Darren, please share the best way for our listeners to find you. I've, I've uh, been very pleased with the good folks at About.me and uh, the, the single, the simplest business, uh, the simplest entry point is uh, at About.me slash Darren Hansen. Dunlithill.com is also the, a great way to, because I'm focusing on collecting everything in book form. So, uh, and, and in this new world, the book is not so much the physical product as it is the organized set of ideas. Uh, and for those interested in pursuing some of the ideas we've touched on here, regardless, while, while my work is focused on publishing, I think it speaks to issues entrepreneurs find in general. And I would recommend, of, of the writing guides, specifically artisan publishing and sustainable creativity, both of which are available wherever you like to find ebooks. I will also be sure to link to both of those uh, from the show notes page, the direct link um, to the Donald Hill, and we'll have the home page there. So excellent. Darren, again, thank you, thank you for sharing with myself and the audience. We truly appreciate your time this morning. It's been a pleasure, Laurie. I told you his voice was great. Like I said in the beginning, I hope you guys truly enjoyed this episode. Always ask yourself why it is you're doing what you're doing and what it is you expect to accomplish once you're done. Then go ahead and check out Darren at DunlithHill.com. Or you can always reach him through our show notes page at technologyequality.com 
forward slash Darren Hansen. Darren, thank you once again. I truly appreciate your time. Techie community, thank you guys for showing up week after week after week. You guys are absolutely awesome. Why don't you head on over to iTunes and click on the subscribe button so you don't ever miss an episode. Then please leave us a review. We would love some feedback on the show. And until our next episode, when we continue to hear the journey, find the pain and create solutions, enjoy the moment.